If you're a note taker, you have kind of one of those bigger margins toward uh, the top uh, of the first page of a new book uh, in your Bible, as I often do with the book of Judges, you might want to write across the top of the page there, or perhaps the top of your notes, this verse from Proverbs, because it's a very fitting commentary on what the book of Judges covers and teaches us, and that's this, Proverbs 14, verse 34. It says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Really, as we look at the book of Judges together, uh, another historical book given to us in the Bible, and basically it's a record of about a time period. We can't be exact. Commentators uh, differ in their estimations. Somewhere around maybe a three to 400 year period. We can't be exactly certain, but basically uh, it's a very dark time in the nation of Israel. It's a time where the nation of Israel goes through decline morally and spiritually. This nation that was, bottom line as we saw, uh, established by God. Uh, God gave them a land. God gave them a new life. He brought them into this promised life there gave them everything they needed for life and godliness, afforded so many promises to them, gave them such a great beginning. And yet then, unfortunately, not too long after the time uh, of Joshua's death and departure, within a short season afterwards, uh, Israel began to digress morally and spiritually. They began to disobey the Lord and his instructions for them as a people, as individuals. And they really went through a very, very dark time. In an absence of leadership, there was a leadership vacuum among them. In fact, uh, uh, perhaps maybe a key verse you might say for the book of Judges, if you want to, you can uh, turn there with me. If you just turn all the way to the end of the book of Judges, in fact, Judges 21. Uh, see that? We covered the whole book in one night. That was fast, wasn't it? All right, and the book of Ruth is about, no, I'm just teasing. Judges 21, look at verse 25, the very last verse of this book. It really is a very fitting sort of key or maybe theme to what this entire book really teaches us and is all about. It, it defines what the climate of the society was like at that time. Judges 21, verse 25, you should be there. It says, in those days... There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, we'll see that phrase show up prior to this time in the book and other phrases that kind of capture that idea. Uh, but there it is as you sort of come to the tail end of the book of Judges in that time period historically. Again, we're dealing with a time historically from the death of Joshua, who, remember, was the leader who took over from Moses, who brought them into the promised land, a primary leader, a shepherd-type leader over the people as a congregation. And yet, unlike when Moses died and God passed on the succession of leadership to Joshua, an ordained individual that God selected and raised up and had his hand upon to lead the people... That doesn't happen in this next generation. Now, whether that was because there was an absence of such an individual, and that's always a very sad thing. Uh, if there was an absence of someone who was competent and qualified for God's role of leadership, 
Uh, we can't uh, be certain. Certainly we find times in the Bible where we read things like that the eyes of the Lord are searching to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for someone whose heart would be loyal towards him, that he might show himself strong on their behalf. In the book of Ezekiel, God says, I searched for a man to stand in the gap uh, to build a wall that he would be able to turn away his wrath, but he found none. So there are these times uh, that the Bible does record throughout history where God is searching. God wants to do something. God wants to provide a good leader. God wants to perhaps work in a way to avert the wrath of God. God wants to work in a way to move in some form on behalf of his people for what's best for them. And God searches and looks and he says, and I can't find anyone. Uh, and it's not as if God doesn't have a good search party. <laughs> God has a full awareness of everything that's happening on the planet. He knows what's happening in every human heart. And whether that was the case after the time of Joshua, we don't know. Or, uh, but what we don't see is a new leader that God tells Joshua like he did Moses. This is the man I've now selected. He's the new ordained leader. And tragically... Israel goes through this time where up until the time from Joshua's death to then when the kings start to come into play, uh, it seems there was clearly just sort of a vacuum of leadership. And, and whenever there's a vacuum of leadership and, and that there's not clear direction and, and a healthy, strong leader, that always leads to decline among people, morally, spiritually, because basically everyone considers themselves a self-imposed God at that point. Uh, and that's what it says here. There was no king, a vacuum of leadership, and everyone in the society of Israel and the nation was just doing what was right in his own eyes. It's what we would refer to as existentialism, which is basically there is no such thing as a standard of right or wrong. Basically, if it works for you, do it. Different strokes for different folks and whatever feels good to you, do it. Whatever you deem right or you deem best, in a sense, you become your own God. You establish your own standard of morality, of right or wrong, and whatever is right in your eyes, from your perspective, that's what's considered right then. That's what's right for you. It may not be right for everybody else, but everybody has the freedom to their own self-indulgences and preferences, and no one should ever say, this is right, that is wrong, this is harmful, this is helpful, th that is pure, that is impure. It becomes a day when people call good evil and evil good, and everyone, in a sense, lives, quite honestly, in a sense of self-worship. Uh, and there is no value system anymore. People worship their selfish desires and their own pleasures. And they, they label it as freedom. We want to be free. We want to just do what's right in our own eyes. Well, that always leads to deterioration of culture and anarchy and really just leads to a, a degradation of any people. Uh, it leads to just sinful indulgences and out of control living uh, and it's self-destructive individually and certainly it just deteriorates uh, and like the Roman Empire which was so strong that collapsed from within the same thing happens to any nation that begins to do that. In fact, interesting, I found this quote, I apologize, I don't know who it's from but I jotted it down. It says, the more you do as you please, the less you will be pleased with what you do. Isn't that good? Let me, let me say it. The more you do as you please, the less you will be pleased with what you do. 
You know, we think that's where satisfaction is. I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. Nobody's going to tell me what's the right outlook, what's right, what's wrong. I'm going to do what I please and satisfy myself and have my own standards of right and wrong and moral and immoral. And, and we, we build this kind of mindset and we find that that is a very miserable, dissatisfying way to live because we weren't intended to live self-indulgent and to satisfy ourselves. It's what we often deteriorate to as human beings uh, in the absence of good leadership and certainly in the absence of ultimately God's leadership. But it's a very uh, miserable condition where ultimately we're just more dissatisfied and miserable. And the book of Judges records a time historically when that is what happens. Now, we'll see as we go through the book of Judges, just by way of introduction here, that Israel is because of these things, they, they basically go through a cycle historically. Uh, and the cycle is kind of almost, a, if you want to consider it a four-stage cycle, basically it's a cycle where, first of all, the first stage is rebellion, where they rebel against God, they disobey the word of God, they begin to worship you know, other things, they turn away their allegiance to God and begin to enter into idolatry and sinful practices, so they just rebel against God's word and God's ways. Uh, and then that stage then leads to a stage of what you might just call suffering uh, or bondage or slavery. Basically, God does as he ultimately will do, as he honors our will. Say, so, okay, if that's what you want to do, then indulge yourself. And ultimately, he turns them over. Typically, it says in, in his discipline, he turns them over to their enemies. So the Philistines or different people groups would then take them over and they would weaken themselves and become vulnerable and God would pull back his favor. He would just retract his favor. And the Bible says the backslider and heart will be filled with his own ways. So basically God just pulls back his favor. He pulls back his mercy and then they enter into a phase where they begin to suffer. They become slaves to other nations and they begin to be ruled over. And basically God says, if you don't want me to rule over you, then okay, I'll allow you to be ruled over by other things. And God lets them for a while experience the suffering the misery of their rebellion and their sinful consequences stage two out of that stage they then enter into a third stage of the cycle which is basically then repentance ultimately they become miserable enough and the suffering gets to them and after a while they become sick and tired of being sick and tired and like the prodigal who finds himself eating the pig slop and says what am i doing and he comes to his senses and then they repent as a people and they cry out to the Lord for deliverance, for help. God, get us out of this. And they, they cry out in their misery. And as a result of that repentant, genuine heart, God then brings the fourth cycle, which is then restoration. God answers in his grace and in his mercy. And when he sees them cry in a repentant, genuine heart, God raises up a deliverer, what we have referred to as Judges, that's what this is referred to. And God would then send them a deliverer who would come and who would, uh, in a sense, lead a military uh, uh, deliverance for them and free them from the Philistines or whoever that may be controlling them at the time. And basically, the sad thing is that just now then becomes a cycle throughout this historical period of a few hundred years where they rebel against God, then they suffer as a result of that. Then they repent after a while, and then after they repent, God then graciously restores them back into right relationship, puts his favor upon their lives again, and after they're enjoying God's favor and restoration, 
Ultimately, again, then they begin to turn away from God and then they suffer as a result and then they repent. And, and, and there's just this miserable cycle they go through as a people historically. Just the same treadmill on the hamster wheel again and again. And unfortunately, they can't seem to break out of that cycle. And you know, this is a cycle that doesn't just happen to them nationally. This is a cycle that can happen to, to people personally, sometimes People, even God's people, from what I've seen observed, can tend to get into this same cycle where they get saved and the Lord does a wonderful work in their life and they're walking with the Lord and they love the Lord and whatever transpires and then they enter into this season of rebellion and they sort of backslide and turn away from the Lord and they begin to disobey the word of God for whatever reasons and however that unfolds and, and they turn away from the Lord and begin to backslide and then as the result, the consequences of their sin start to come upon them. And the Bible says, he who sins, Jesus said, becomes a slave of sin. And then all of a sudden they find themselves in bondage and misery and, and, and they're experiencing the unpleasant fruit and consequences of turning away from the Lord and beginning to live a life maybe like they once lived before to, or because they've disobeyed God's word and then they find themselves in that misery stage. And then when you get miserable in life, and sometimes it takes a while, we're all different but eventually you kind of go through that prodigal phase where you get miserable enough then you cry out to the Lord and you repent and Lord I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired why did I turn away from you get me out of this Lord forgive me deliver me save me and, and God graciously intervenes where sin abounds grace abounds much more and then he comes and he rescues us and he delivers us out of it and he restores us and puts us back on our feet again and cleans us up and says look I love you still and let's not go back there again and the sad thing is that some people live in that cycle some of God's people sometimes never tend to get out of that cycle and, and, and they just keep repeating the same cycle again and again and again and again and the tragedy is as they live in that cyclical way that they're forfeiting the wonderful things that God has for them Listen, I understand to a sense we, we all stumble, we all struggle on occasion, but there's a big difference between stumbling and, and struggling on occasion and living in this sort of cyclical pattern that, that I'm describing where, where we just continue to just go back again into the same patterns and, and, and that whole process and basically in a lot of ways start to live what we might call a saved soul and a wasted life. Where, yeah, we're saved, but like 1 Corinthians 3, we're going to get into heaven with our garments smelling like smoke. <laughs> everything's burned up. Everything's wasted. We forfeited all the good things and the rewards and the experiences we could have had. And our soul is spared, but yet basically we've burned up and wasted a life that we really could have lived fruitfully and productively in the promises of God. Now, the book of Judges, don't picture in your mind the modern idea you have in, when we think of the word judge like our judicial system. The word judges is basically a Hebrew term that's used. It should better be rendered maybe perhaps what we would think of as deliverers or military leaders. Uh, we'll see 13 of these. I believe 12 uh, men, one female, Deborah, we'll see become these judges that God will raise up who at times when they cry out for his help will come and intervene and will lead them out of their bondage and bring them back into a season of stability. Uh, and, and we'll see this pattern as we go throughout the book of Judges together. So let, let's jump in together. Verse 1 sort of gives you a little bit of a backdrop of what we'll see in the time of this period 
historically in Judges. It says, now it came after the death of Joshua. So that marks sort of the stage that we're in. It came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, who shall be first to go up for us among the Canaanites to fight against them? Now, what we're going to see here in chapter one, which sort of marks some of this beginning of the concessions and the compromises that they're making, and we'll see that in what's described here about going up and taking the land, fighting against the Canaanites and driving them out. We know at this time from Joshua, the, the land has been entered into, They've conquered a lot of the primary military battles they needed to, to take basically the primary control of the land. They sort of broken the back, if you would, of the enemies of the land uh, of Canaan. Uh, the land has been allotted to the different tribes, but yet there are sort of some mop-up missions, if you would, for them to now each as allotted tribes go in and occupy the land that has been allotted to them. So God's given them the land, uh, they've won some battles already. The land has been allotted to the different tribes. We went through that, showed you the map of the different locations as God gave them different territories. But now they need to go through a process where they continue to occupy the land that was given to them, where they take possession of the blessings and what God has provided for them, just like you and I. God has provided us, Ephesians 1 says, every spiritual blessing in Christ but from the day we're saved until the day we go home to be with Jesus, our responsibility is in faith and steps of obedience to walk out the Christian life and to occupy the spiritual life, not a land, but the spiritual life that God's given to us and to experience the fullness of all that he has intended for us and to not hold back. So here they're inquiring of the Lord as they're seeking to occupy this land. They're seeking God's counsel. That's a good start. It doesn't go too well after this, but, but they start out well, Lord, they say, uh, give us guidance. Who should go up first against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord answered their prayer, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hands. So the Lord's answer comes back. Judah should lead the way. Again, remember Judah had one of the largest territories down in the south. Uh, this could be because Judah was uh, the kingly tribe. Remember, Jesus came from the, the tribe of Judah. We know the Bible of the lion of the tribe of, of Judah. So it could be that because they are the kingly tribe, from which the scepter and rulership would come from. Uh, we know as far back as the prophecy back in uh, Genesis chapter 49 there as Jacob was prophesying over his 12 sons, the sons of Israel, that it was clear that the rulership, the scepter would come through the tribe of Judah. So it could be this is why they are designated to go up first by God here. But again, God reiterates, I have, notice past tense, not I will. Take notice, God doesn't say, I will. He says, I have delivered it into his hand. In other words, it's already his. The promise is sure. The gift is given. It is available. It's not a matter of you might acquire it. You might experience it. God just says, I've already given it to you. They may be occupying this, but it's yours. It's something that's already been given by his word, but they now need to walk it out and experience it. Just like God's promises. When God gives a promise... His promise is given. It, it's a given thing. But it's our responsibility as believers to believe God at his word, to experience what he has given and supplied to us in our lives spiritually. So he says, I've delivered it into his hand 
Verse 3, so Judah, however, in response now, said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me to my allotted territory that we might fight against the Canaanites and I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. Now, at first glance, you read verse 3 and there's a part of that that you might say, well, that, that's nice. It's partnership. Judah turns to Simeon and he says, you know what, hey, I'll tell you what. And remember, Simeon kind of was in the same general vicinity of where Judah was. So Judah turns to Simeon and he says, I'll tell you what. How about you come with us? We'll do a partnership thing here. You help me conquer my allotted territory. And then when we're done, I promise to do the same for you. I'll support you. I'll stand by your side and I'll give you assistance that you need to conquer your allotted territory. And in one sense, you could look at that and say, wow, brotherly fellowship, supporting one another. That's beautiful. And listen, I, I think in the spiritual life, there should be that hard attitude where, you know, I support you and you support me and we uphold one another and help each other fight our battles and victories and in one sense great principle that's true we should do that but when you consider the reality of what's going on here could this perhaps be instead rather of the beginning of a concession and a compromise spiritually because they prayed who should go up God didn't say Judah and Simeon he said Judah Tell Judah to go up and conquer his land. In other words, he needs to conquer the land that I've given to him. This is his calling. This is his battle. And I have delivered it into his hand. He doesn't need Simeon. He doesn't need Benjamin. He doesn't need any of the other tribes. This can happen between me and him. I have sufficient power to assist him. In one sense, you wonder if God is saying, wait a minute. I said, I'm going to come up with you. Why are you asking Simeon to come up with you? <laughs> it's almost as if in case God doesn't show up, Simeon, would you come up with me? <laughs> because just in case God doesn't show up, I want to make sure I've got the arm of flesh to lean upon. I want to make sure I have a backup option. In case God's promise fails or God's power doesn't work, I want to make sure I have a little human ingenuity and assistance and something that's tangible as a resource that I can use to bring about God's plan or God's purpose. Listen, there's a part of that that becomes really nothing other than unbelief. It's not taking God at his word. It's not fully relying upon the Lord and the arm of the Lord and the fact that the presence of God would be with him and that God's word was that this was a battle for Judah. And see, for our lives spiritually, we always need to remember when God calls us to something, to walk out some area of our Christian life, to walk in victory, to overcome sin. Again, I'm not diminishing the value of mutual encouragement, edification and accountability and support. I mean, this is a wonderful thing. But there's also a thing where we need to realize that there's a sufficiency of the word of God and the spirit of God to walk in Christian victory and to accomplish battles where we can be victorious over sin and over our enemies and drive things out of our lives and conquer and overcome with the Lord and us and the Lord between us and the Lord. And we have a personal responsibility at times to answer the call of God and to walk worthy of the calling that we've received and to walk that out on our own and to be able to experience the Lord and to know that it was the Lord that did it. Not, oh, because I had this person's help. No, there's a part of growing up spiritually that is, yeah, you did that because Jesus helped you do it. Not Jesus and your spouse or Jesus and your mommy or Jesus and your dad or Jesus and your Christian brother. You and Jesus, 
You walk this out together. And Jesus did that for you. And he helped you to experience that. And so here, again, it sounds beautiful. Simeon does go with him. And verse 4 says, When Judah went up, the Lord delivered. Notice, not Simeon. The Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. Now, that's a huge casualty number. I mean, we really don't even hear those kind of things in conflict nowadays. 10,000 people. That's a, that's a major conflict that took place. 10,000 people were put to death. And it says, verse 5, they found Adonai Bezek. And again, the word Adonai is the term Lord. Bezek is just the title, the word fire, that is Lord of fire. This was probably the king or the ruler of that territory, obviously. So they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and they fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And then Adonai Bezek fled and they pursued him and they caught him and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Now, the reason they would do this was basically to just incapacitate someone, certainly who was a king or a, a military leader or a general. Uh, to cut off the thumbs and the big toes. And this was cultural practice in warfare of that day. If you cut off someone's thumbs, they weren't able then to adequately hold and to wield a sword properly in conflict. So you rendered them unable to properly handle a bow or to hold a sword and to use the sword to use it to fight in battle. If you cut off someone's big toes, well, your toe, big toe is critical for your ability to stand sufficiently and to walk and to run and to move in a way where you're very mobile and agile. So to do this, you hindered someone incredibly. You incapacitated them. So this was a Unfortunately, and we'll see in the next verse that Adonai Bezek, uh, don't feel you know, too bad for him. He did this to 70 other people. Uh, so uh, what goes around comes around and there was a little bit of sowing and reaping that took place here. So Israel does this to this king. Now, again, what you see taking place here is something that culture did and other nations would do. L let me just read to you uh, for sake of refresher, if you're a note taker, Deuteronomy chapter 7 uh, because God says something very clear in Deuteronomy 7 regarding when they entered into the land and they were driving out the enemies that did not belong there. Listen again. Please listen. Deuteronomy 7. It says, When the Lord God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, these are the two nations we just read, the Canaanites and Perizzites. The Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. When the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them, utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. So what begins to happen here is, in a sense, they show a measure of mercy by not putting Adonai Bezek, the ruler of this territory, to death as they did all the other people. Instead, for whatever reasoning, they choose to humiliate them, to incapacitate them in this way that was very cultural to make themselves perhaps acceptable and relevant to everyone else and what everyone else was doing cultural. They do that instead of obeying the word of God, which would have been basically to execute him. 
God's word said full obedience would be to execute this king, to eliminate him so that he could not do the things that he was doing anymore. God had his divine purposes. We've talked about this before for that. But instead of execute him, they just incapacitate him. Better stated, instead of obeying the word of God, they do what's culturally relevant instead. We have to be careful of that. We have to be very careful that we don't, as Christians, as God's people, take our cues from culture rather than take our commands from the Word of God. We always get into a very dangerous place where we start to say, well, I know what the Word of God says, but culture's saying. This is what culture's doing. That We have to be careful. And here, this was, I believe, again, another indication of compromise concession and this again it happens gradually this is always how people get off track this is always how nations get off track it's always got a long history to it small concessions small compromises nobody wakes up one day and says you know i mean i've had i just i think i want to just be a heroin addict i've been thinking about it for a few years now i got a good life but i think i'm just ready to be a heroin addict now Or I think I'm just going to go out and ruin my life or ruin my marriage or go out and break the law. No, there's always a history of gradual concessions, small compromises. And this is the reason why it's no joking matter when we're making small compromises, when we're making small concessions, because we're dulling our senses spiritually and we're making little allowances, which then every time we've, instead of, because we would never maybe cross the whole mile at once, but one step at a time, it's amazing how all of a sudden we're not afraid to go to step two once we've already taken step one, because it doesn't seem as far as a step to take. And then little by little, step by step, we begin to digress morally and spiritually. It happens in our individual lives. It happens in churches. It happens in countries and societies as well. So Adonai Bezek here has this treatment. Verse 7, he then says in response, notice verse 7, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes, he says, uh, cut off, used to gather scraps under my table. So this guy wasn't too pleasant to others. As I have done... So God has repaid me and they brought him to Jerusalem and there he ultimately died. So Adonai Bezek again realizes he wasn't just some innocent victim. He's basically in his own admission says, I guess this is what people talk about when they say sowing and reaping. He says, as I've done to 70 other people, this, this has now been done to me. And again, just this principle does seem to stand that typically, you know, we say in, you know, again, secular vernacular, what goes around comes around poetic. Just the Bible just says sowing and reaping, that what you sow, you are ultimately going to reap. It's just the way that things work. Uh, and if we sow to what's right and righteous, we're going to reap the benefits spiritually of that. And when we sow to the flesh and we do things wrong and disobedient, we're going to reap the bad fruit of that as well. And, and it's just an important thing to remember that you know, if we are sowing unhealthy, cruel things, we're treating people in ways, we're being you know, hurtful with our words, or, or you know, to realize that ultimately... God has a way where all of a sudden somehow that comes back around and we find ourselves victim to that very thing that we were doing to lots of other people. And again, this is what this man recognizes. I have done. He says, I guess I realize this has now been repaid back to me. Verse 8, now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. 
And they struck it with the edge of the sword, and they set the city on fire. So they now turn their attention towards the city of Jerusalem, which will ultimately become the capital. <clears throat> Again, using the edge of the sword to conquer the people, and then setting a portion of that city there on fire. I, I have that underlined in my Bible with th that they struck the city with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire because the sword in the Bible is usually often a typical picture, a symbol of the word of God, the sword of the spirit, Hebrews 4 says, is, is the word of God. So I like that, the sword of the spirit and they set the city on fire. How do you set a city on fire? By using the sword of the spirit. It's the word of God is the only thing really that's ever going to set a city on fire spiritually, if you would, for God's plans and purposes. Well, verse 9, afterward, the children of Judah went down to the fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains and in the south and in the lowlands. So they're in the mountain ranges there. They're in the south, the Negev, that area, the lowland. And then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirjoth Arba, and they killed Sheshai, Ahimon, and Talmai, and from there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. And the name of Debir was formerly Kirjath Sefer. And verse 12 says, Then Caleb, remember him, he was the one man together with Joshua who had faith when the spies went into the land. We studied his life back in the book of Joshua. Caleb said, whoever attacks Kirjath Sefer and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Aksa as a wife. And Athiniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So he gave to him Aksa as a wife. Now, that should sound familiar because back in the book of Joshua in chapter 15, we already read this account back there of this taking place. Now, why is it recorded again? Possibly, again, God has his reasons why he at times is repetitious. God does repeat himself. So sometimes when you get annoyed with people who repeat themselves and say, why do you keep saying the same thing? So does God. Because sometimes we need to hear the same thing again for different reasons and purposes. God repeats himself in the word. God's recording a story that was already recorded back in a prior book. One of the reasons possibly it's repeated here is because Othniel, mentioned in verse 13, he becomes the first judge historically in the time of the book of Judges. We'll see in chapter 3. So that's probably the reason, more than likely, this story is recorded here again. But Othniel, we're, we're introduced to this young man who was a man of great value. He showed his value and his worth, his valor, his courage, his willingness to fight battles for right causes and do what is noble and righteous uh, and to prove his worth to his uncle Caleb who basically says, listen, remember Caleb had that spirit where he wanted to conquer mountains and fight giants and he says, listen, I want to take some territory and he says, who's interested in joining me in the process? And he lays out the opportunity where he apparently had a daughter that was available and of age and he says whoever's willing to go and take that land he says I'll consider that dowry and payment for my daughter and I'll give my daughter AXA to that individual as a wife if they prove themselves worthy and they conquer and they fight this battle for me and for the Lord's purposes and Othniel steps to the task he goes forth and does it and it says that Caleb gave him his daughter Aksa as a wife and again there's, I love this picture we, we talked about it back there again but again this picture of this father having this heart attitude 
that listen, if you have interest in my daughter, then you prove your worth. I'll give my daughter Axa as a wife, not just freely to any bum, but to someone who proves their worth of her. I'm not just allowing her to begin. No, I will give her, I will turn the stewardship of my love and care and, and what I've been in her life as a covering, her protector, her provider, her spiritual leader. And, and ultimately, that's what happens in marriage. She's then transitioned over to a husband who hopefully will step into that role and do the same thing just as good or even better as her completer. And I love this heart of this father here, pictured in the word of God, this attitude of, you know, that there was something to be done. There was a measure of this young man proving himself. And I think as fathers of daughters, this is a, a good thing for us to look for this. I know this is something that's become more important to my heart of late as my daughters are getting closer. They got at least 20, 30 years more. I mean, they're only, you know, high school and college age. That's nowhere near the age yet. Uh, but I want to see that. I, I want to see, listen, you, know, you don't get free access. You earn access. You demonstrate access that then ultimately one day I will walk her down the aisle and say those painfully horrible words. Who gives this woman in marriage, her mother and I? And I think as fathers, we should have that heart. And if you have young sons or young men you're raising, you know what? Teach them that. Teach them. Listen, do you want that young lady? Prove your worth. Demonstrate your worth. Pursue her. Be a man. Be a proper man. Pursue her. Show that you're, you're someone who is worthy of of caring for her, worthy of having her given to you by her father as a wife that you have proved that in some ways. And I think our young men should embrace that challenge and want to have that hard attitude rather than think that they just have entitlement to any young lady that they want. I mean, it's, we should value certainly our young women to a much greater degree than that. Verse 14, now it happened, it says, when she then came to him, that's Othniel, who she had just gotten married to, she urged him, women have a way to do that in influence in marriage, right? She urged him, hey, ask my father, who's now your, your father-in-law, for a field. We need somewhere to set up uh, a residence. And then she dismounted from her donkey and Caleb, her father, said to her, what do you wish? And so she said, give me a blessing. Since you've given me land in the south, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper and the lower springs. So again, the, the same story recounted for us. She encourages her husband to ask her father-in-law for the gift of a, an area of land in the south. That was desert area. And then she, wisely understanding her father's generosity, says, Look, uh, you've given us a piece of land, Dad, but it's, it's a desert area. And to have land with no good water source would not be a very good thing. So she says, Father, w w would you give me a blessing? And he says, Well, what do you wish? What do you want? And he gave to her springs of water, a water source for that land, the upper and the lower springs. And of course, just as we said before, in the prior time we looked at this in Joshua 15, just beautiful pictures there again of this interaction between uh, a child and their father, asking their father for a blessing, believing his benevolence, believing his goodness. And if she didn't ask, she wouldn't have received. The Bible says we have not because we ask not at times. Jesus even says to us, ask and you shall receive. He says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children as fathers, how much more will the heavenly father give good things? Another account says to give his Holy Spirit to those who ask. And we can ask, I think, our father for 
springs of water, that water, that blessing of his spirit that we want in our lives as well. It's a good thing for us to emulate what we see here of this daughter with her father. Verse 16, now the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms, that's Jericho actually, with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. And they went and dwelt among the people. And Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited uh, Zephath and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah, and also Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, Ekron with its territory. These would be Philistine areas we'll see in time. So the Lord was with Judah, and that's the reason. Notice again, there's the reason for the victories, not good military skill or Simeon's assistance. It's because the Lord was with Judah. That makes all the difference in victory and conquering things. And they notice, verse 19, drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. Now again here, for some reason, the Lord was with them. They drove out the mountaineers, but when it came to the lowland, the low-lying territories, they saw chariots of iron. And again, was it the unbelief in their hearts? It was not clearly the fact that God somehow can conquer mountaineers, but he can't deal with chariots of iron. So you let us never read that. And, you know, well, I don't know. God can handle mountaineers, but them chariots of iron, they really intimidate God. He can't handle those. Apparently, there was something that broke down of the dependency level of Judah upon God, where, where they believed God to do this, but they weren't willing to believe God to do that. And sometimes we can do that, right? God gives us victory, and we see the power of God in this area, but then something else comes up, and it looks like it's a lot harder, like that's, that's, that's iron tough, man. That's the, that's the lowland. That's really entrenched, and we don't believe God to work in that situation, and we have to be careful of that. If God can do this, God can do this as well. There's nothing too hard for the Lord. We need to believe that and trust God to work in any and every situation. Verse 20, and they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses said, and he expelled from there three sons of Anak. So he drove out the giant descendants that were in that area. Remember, Caleb had such incredible faith. That was the, clearly the evidence. This man who had great faith, notice, was able to drive out giants. Uh, and that's how we do conquer the things that are giants in our lives is by our faith and confidence in the Lord. Verse 21, but the children of Benjamin, now watch as this chapter sort of wraps up here, this repetitious language which shows us what's starting to happen now historically. But the children of Benjamin, another tribe now, did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Now take notice the language. It doesn't say they could not. It says they did not. They did not. They chose to make a concession. Well, I mean, this is good enough. We'll, we'll let them stay. I mean, everybody else we're going to get rid of, but, but this is okay. We're going to allow for this one exemption here, this one allowance. And they did not drive out something that God wanted them to drive out. And sometimes when we make those allowances and we don't drive out of our life something that God says, get this out of your life. This doesn't belong in your life. This is going to hinder you spiritually. This is going to be an enemy to your walk and relationship with me, whether, again, it's, it's some habit or some thing we're involved in or some relationship, and, and we make an allowance. Well, I'm going to do this, 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 and this, but I'm going to, this one area, I'm going to leave an allowance, and we don't drive it out when God tells us to. 
ultimately that's what starts to cause compromise and weakens us and ultimately those things come back and rule us and usually enslave us. Watch how this sort of becomes repetitious now as we go forward. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel and the Lord was with him. So the house of Joseph sent men to spy Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz and the spies saw a man coming out from the city and they said to him, please show us the entrance into your city and we'll show you mercy. He thought, that sounds like a good idea. Show you the entrance and I don't die. So he showed them the entrance to the city and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and his family go. And the man, look at this, verse 26, went to the land of the Hittites and he built a city and called its name Luz, which is its name to this day. So follow what's happening here. They go to a territory that's named, it says Bethel, formerly its name was Luz. For whatever reason, again, contradictory to Deuteronomy 7, which said what? Do not show mercy. That's what they just showed this man. Don't make covenants. Don't make compromises. Don't show mercy to any of the people of the land. They show mercy to this guy and it doesn't work out anyway because look what he does. They show mercy and say, look, if you just show us how to get into your city as if somehow they need his help because God's help wasn't good enough again, Show us the entrance to your city. We'll spare you and show you mercy. The man does this. He takes them up on their opportunity. And it says that he then, verse 26, went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. Point being, unlike Rahab, who dwelt among the people of God and have faith, this man is showed God's mercy and he's spared by God's mercy. And he basically goes and rebuilds the city that God just destroyed, which was the city of Luz. So here you have a picture of what happens, unfortunately. Here is a man, pay attention, who was spared by God, and then he goes back and he builds the same old life that he had before God spared him. He goes and he rebuilds his old life again. And boy, isn't that a sad pattern, if we were very honest, that people participate in as well? People are spared by the Lord, and God spares them and he shows them mercy and kindness. And then sadly, instead of throwing themselves into the things of God and following God and immersing themselves in the people of God, instead, they go back and they rebuild the old life they once lived in that had nothing to do with God and nothing to do with God's people. It's, it's so sad to see this take place when people will, again, God will do something so wonderful. Oh, Lord, bail me out, bail me out. 911, I need God. And, and then all of a sudden, God comes through. He spares them. And instead of serve him, they go back and they rebuild the old life. And they go back to the old patterns again. That's always such a sad thing. And this man is a fitting picture of that. However, verse 27, notice Matt Manasseh, another tribe, they did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages. Again, notice they did not drive them out. Look at verse 29. Nor did Ephraim, another tribe, drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Jazir, but they dwell there among them. Verse 30. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahol. So the Canaanites dwelt among them and they were put under tribute. That is, they sought to use them as slaves for their own enrichment instead of doing what God told them to. Verse 31, nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko or of Sidon. 
So the Asherites dwell among them. Verse 33, nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemus, it says, among them. Verse 34, and the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, that is, they pushed back God's people, for they would not allow them to come down to the valley, and the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Herez, in Ajalon, verse 35, and Shalabim, yet when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute, and the boundary of the Amorites was from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah, and upward. Do you notice the pattern that starts to unfold here as I indicated the repetition? Ephraim, Zebulun, Manasseh, Asher, Naphtali. It says they did not drive out the people of the territories. It doesn't say they could not. It says they did not. They chose not to drive out what God told them to. They chose not to deal with what God told them to. They chose not to obey God. And basically, apparently, these people, the enemies in the land, their enemies were more determined to stay entrenched in those territories and rule over them than God's people were determined to obey the word of God. Listen, there are going to be enemies in all of our lives, ladies and gentlemen, things that are determined to stay entrenched in your life, to rule you, to govern you, to keep you from what God wants for you, his best for you, his highest ideal in your spiritual life, in your marriage, your family, all the good plans and purposes God has for you. There are going to be enemies, weaknesses of our flesh, and things that are always going to be there that want to drive us back and that are determined to stay entrenched don't let those things be more determined than you are to obey the word of God and to let the power of God bring you the victory by his spirit and through his word to experience all the blessings that God wants to give to you. Be determined spiritually. Don't make concessions and compromises. That never works in the end. It only brings regret, only brings remorse. Let's stand, let's pray together.